Job 34 is our passage this evening, the entirety of that chapter. God's holy and inspired word given to us as people. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job chapter 34. God's word. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words, as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? Who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man? Who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus knowing their works, he overturns them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them for, all, for their wickedness in a place for all to see. Because they turned aside from following him, and had no regard of any of his ways. So that they caused the, poor, the cry of the poor to come to him, and he heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign and that he should not ensnare the people. For as anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend any more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? You must choose, not I. Therefore declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, the wise man who hears me uh, will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without sight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. 
For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless So how do you give a compliment? If you want to praise and honor someone for their excellence, how is this done well? Now this seems like a dumb question. This is easy enough. You just say something nice. And yet if you think about it, Compliments have more pitfalls than first meets the eye. For one, we quickly spill over into flattery. Now, sure, nobody now or nobody nowadays seems to care about this as everyone does it, but scripturally speaking, flattery is not a virtue. We, though, hastily will pile up exaggerated praise for someone, even though it has little to do with the truth. We will stroke their ego, hoping to get the same in return. Secondly, though, there is the tendency to elevate someone by tearing others down. They're great because everyone else is terrible. With cruel criticism and merciless judgment, we will denounce others as if, as, as if this honestly sings the praise of someone else. Though neither of these ways of complimenting quite meet the standard of truth, nor do they measure up to sincere love. Moreover, even though at times such misguided compliments seem harmless, at other times they can increase injustice and sin. Thus, it's good for us to think more carefully about compliments, which Elihu helps us to do. So for the last two chapters, Elihu has had the stage, and he's not about to give it up anytime soon. With the microphone in his hand, then, Elihu launches into the third section of his lengthy speech. And he breaks the ice, the ice with an, another vigorous demand to listen. Hear my words, you wise and knowledgeable. Now, it's not clear who these astute sages are. Being plural, we naturally think of the three friends, And yet Elihu was upset with them for their inaptitude, so it's less likely that he's targeting them. Rather, it's best to take this as a general call to the super smart to hear him out and to agree with him. Yes, Elihu is confident that the brilliant professors will consent to his ideas. Though this command to hear feels a bit off. And it is because this is the fifth time So far, that he's yelled, hear me. And he's going to say it three more times in this very chapter. Why so much screaming to listen to him? This is starting to feel a little like special pleading, as if Elihu is covering for some insecurity or expressing some proud ego. Our suspicions about Elihu have resurfaced. Either way, he invites the stages the uh, sages, to a group thought project. He says, the ear tests words, the palate savors food, so let us examine justice together. May we know between us what is good. Elihu wants to employ reason and discernment to figure out what is just and proper. Now, of course, this narrowly is focused upon Job to understand how he is in the wrong and how Elihu is in the right, though this language is a little bit more universal and grandiose. 
Literally, he says, let us examine justice together. Now, of course, the Lord grants us humans the power of rationality and research. And the Lord wants us to use our heads to distinguish between the just and the unjust, the good and the evil. But there are limits to this. For we cannot figure out everything, and justice can be particularly elusive for us at times. Particularly in Job's case, for we know as readers what happened in heaven from the opening chapters, but the characters of the story don't know this. Elihu's optimism on the powers of human reason feel a little overly optimistic. His confidence in his ability isn't fully persuasive. Either way, he has told us what he's doing. He is going to show us what is just and right, and so let's see how he does. And he starts starts by putting Job in the scales in verses 5 through 9. Here, he quotes what Job has said, and then he evaluates Job's character. And as we've seen before in this book, how well someone quotes another is very telling. So he first cites Job saying, I am righteous, and God has turned away my case. That is, God didn't hold court for Job as he wanted so badly. Now, these are an accurate citation, which come from uh, chapter 13, verse 18, and 27, verse 2. So far, so good. Next, he has Job saying, I am counted as a liar. Now, this isn't a quote, but it does well summarize what Job was thinking in chapter 6, verse 28, when he said, I will not lie, and in 24, verse 25, when he challenged his friends and said, who can prove me to be a liar? So, good enough so far. Next, though, he puts on Job's lips, I am without transgression, which isn't put so well. For even though Job clearly considered himself innocent of any sin deserving his horrid suffering, Job has still admitted that he was not perfect. In fact, Job has said this to God. He said, pardon my sin, teach me my sin, seal up my sin. And Job said, I did not conceal my sin, as did Adam. Elihu's point here lacks nuance. But he goes, but then he goes on to rebuke Job for drinking scoffing like water. Now this line he rips off of Eliphaz in 15 verse 16, who said that or wicked men drink evil as water. So Elihu switches out evil for scoffing. And yet, has Job been drunk on scoffing? This line strikes us as over the top hyperbole. Sure, Job has been bold, he has put God in the dock, but Job has sung doxologies of God, God's greatness, more than he's challenged God. Here, accuracy has now given way to exaggeration. Next, Elihu posits that Job has shacked up with evildoers and he travels with the wicked. But where in the world does Elihu get this? There is zero proof and evidence to support this claim. Finally, he writes upon the the tongue of Job, there is no profit for a man when he delights in God. 
But you can find nothing like this in all of Job's words. In fact, in 21 verse 15, Job condemned the wicked for thinking this very thing, and he said that the thoughts of the wicked are far from me. Job rejected this very notion, but now Elihu charges him for it. This, then, is a downright false charge. Elihu condemns Job wrongly. Thus, Elihu has gone from accuracy, verse 5, lacking nuance, verse 6, to exaggeration, verse 7, to an unsubstantiated claim, verse 8, and now to false charges, verse 9. This is not a healthy progression. This feels like poor listening and even worse judgment. In chapter 32, remember that we were told about a handful of times how angry Elihu was, and we wondered if his anger would get out of control. Well, his fury seems to be getting reckless as he he starts to jettison what is fair, impartial, and balanced. Anger and humans can be a toxic concoction, and Elihu does not seem to avoid this toxicity at this point. But with Job condemned and denounced, Elihu launches into a lofty compliment of God in verses 10 to 15. With another, another redundant call to hear, Elihu lays out the sovereignty and justice of God. He says, There's no possible way that God does wickedness. The Almighty never acts perversely. Corrupting justice is impossible for the Lord. Instead, God repays a person according to his deeds. Proportionate and fitting retribution is the way of the Almighty. For he is the one God. No one put God in charge of the world. None stands above the Lord. For he created all and he sustains all by the power of his will. For, as Elihu goes on, if God wanted to, he could recall the breath of life, and all flesh would perish. Now this is true enough, and it is fitting praise for the Lord. But we somewhat struggle to see the point. Why insert this doxology of God? Elihu says this as if Job denied it or doesn't agree, like Job needs to learn this about the Lord. But Job has not said anything against this. Job did say God bent me, but he never voiced that God bent justice. Indeed, it's Job's unshakable confidence in God's justice that makes his appeal so intensely for a trial. If Job considered God to be a corrupt judge, such a trial would not have a value. Moreover, Job has delivered more eloquent doxologies than this one. Just think of chapter 28 and the beautiful ode to God's wisdom. Or in chapter 26, the hymn to God's mysterious power. That there's nothing, thus there's nothing wrong per se here in what Elihu says, but it doesn't seem terribly relevant. He affirms God's sovereign righteousness But no one disputes this, not Job, nor the three friends. Then, based on this praise, Elihu sharply again rebukes Job in verses 16 and 17. 
He again shouts, hear this, Job. And then he chides him for condemning the mighty righteous one, God. He denounces Job for denying the justice of God, which Job never has really done. Even more so, he says to Job, shall one who hates justice govern? This casts Job as one who hates justice. But how is this accurate? Again, uh, it is Job's zeal and love for justice that needs so desperately to be vindicated by God. Besides, since when is Job trying to replace God as governor? Sure, Job laid error at God's feet for not giving him a trial, but he made no attempt to usurp the tribunal of the Almighty. Thus, Elihu here has a smidgen of truth, but it's all wrapped up in blustering hyperbole and kind of a cruel lack of charity. His anger is pressing uh, pressing beyond the limits of what is proper. But having Job, or having poked Job in the eye, Elihu continues to laud the judgment of God. For now, in verses 18 to 28, he waxes on about the irresistible justice of the Lord. The Almighty is the one who can shame kings for being worthless. Partiality for the rich and powerful finds no place in him, for the Lord is all-knowing. He sees every baby step of us humans. He spots each movement in our minds and our hearts. There is no place for us humans to hide. No darkness is too black to conceal us. No hole is too deep to cover us from God's knowledge. Moreover, God doesn't hold court days for us to be tried. For the Lord has no need to gather evidence. He doesn't need to hear out witnesses. He is omniscient. He knows everything about us, and so no research is required. And when the Lord does decide to judge, it's swift and final. At midnight, he strikes down. God shatters the mighty and puts others in their place. Because humans rebel against their creator, the Lord smites them, and he does it where all can see. Public and open is the judgment of God upon the wicked, so that all may see and be warned. Now, all of this is all fine and good, but why rehearse this unless Elihu thinks it applies to Job? Particularly verse 26, where he says, God smites for all to see. How is the implication here not about Job? All can see Job's misery. He's out on the ash heap. So it must be God's judgment. Indeed, Elihu colors God's irresistible judgment as being carried out purely by retribution. Elihu seems to be indistinguishable from the three friends here. The promising start of Elihu has swerved into the ditch at this point. Though the point he makes in verse 29 is more sound. He says, when God is silent, who can condemn When he hides his face, who can perceive him? Namely, God's silence and hiddenness doesn't give us the ground to posit that God is in the wrong. And Job has struggled with this, as he has again and again lamented about the Lord's silent treatment of him 
and he has suggested that something awry is in God. Job has not read well God's silence. And yet, in the Psalms, we often hear the psalmist lamenting about the quiet of God, mourning the muteness of the Almighty. This is pious and legit. And much of Job's sadness falls into this category. Praying for the Lord to break his silence, this can come from faith. Thus, Elihu is more to the point here, but he does apply it to Job without charity. He doesn't give Job the benefit of the doubt, but he reads Job in the worst possible light. And this lack of charity starts to smell even stronger as he, in what he says next. For now, he hands Job a sample repentance in verses 31 and 32. Here, he gives Job the words on how to confess. He says, I have borne punishment. I am guilty of iniquity. Show me what I'm ignorant of, and I will sin no more. Now, this written-out repentance is well expressed. There's a confession of guilt, submission to God's punishment, and a promise not to transgress again. This is orthodox repentance. The question is, though, is this correctly applied to Job? Well, Job has already voiced for himself, verse 32, when he said, Teach me, Lord, what I do not see. Job prayed for God to reveal any of his sins to him. And so this seems redundant. Yet the sticky point in verse, is verse 31, I have borne punishment. This states that all of Job's suffering and loss is the Lord's just punishment for his transgressions. And this is exactly what is not the case. Job knows he's not suffering for a sin, and heaven agreed with him. The Lord let the Satan torment Job for nothing. The divine counsel has ruled Job is not miserable for his sin. But Elihu has cast his vote against the verdict of heaven. This is not good. And yet the youthful zeal of Elihu rushes ahead undeterred. For now, he concludes his speech in this chapter with more confidence. He now asserts that the scholarly scholarly sages will agree with him. Surely all the smart people are on Elihu's side. Though this is not fair argumentation. To color disagreement as stupidity is prejudicial. Next, he outright calls Job dumb. He speaks without knowledge. He has no insight. Job, you're just a dunce. Then he wishes for Job to be tested and tried endlessly. Elihu hopes that Job will be answered like wicked men, and he's nailed upon the wall that Job has added rebellion to sin and his iniquity is unbounded as he multiplies words or disputes against God. Now, to add rebellion to sin means... That Job sinned, he lost everything, and now he sinned even more. As well as testing calls for Job to suffer more. Job's agony and pain has been his crucible. 
But with Job failing this exam, according to Elihu, Elihu wishes for more heat and pressure. Besides missing the mark, this feels like cruelty. The anger of Elihu is running amok. Elihu's temper has taken a few accurate truths here. He's exaggerated them, blown them out of proportion, and felt justified to make false condemnations. In his fury, he made statements with no evidence. Job is just a member of a wicked gang. He's pulling rabbits out of hats here. He, Job, has not listened with cheer, or, or Elihu has not listened with charity, but he has pre- had a presumption of the worst towards Job. Job is mourning God's silence. Oh, he's just calling God unjust. Job is weeping uh, that he's not suffering for sin. And Elihu responds, how dare you condemn the righteous almighty. But such was not Job's intention. Moreover, Elihu's anger has been harsh with Job here. He calls him a hater of justice, stupid, and a drinker of scoffing. He shames him as a major sinner. On top of this, he wishes that Job would keep suffering. The flogging of God hasn't humbled Job yet, so let the whip lash and lash again. Elihu initially became angry over something legit. Job justified himself more than God. Righteous anger was fitting. But his temper has crashed through the proper boundaries. In his fury, Elihu treats Job cruelly and harshly. He spits a judgment at Job without a hint of mercy, fairness, or compassion. Indeed, no pastoral tone is heard here in Elihu. Discipline is done to restore and reconcile But where is this detected in Elihu here? Rather, Elihu takes it upon himself to defend the justice and righteousness of God. He is singing the compliments of the Almighty, but he praises God mostly by demeaning and ripping into Job. Look how horrible Job is, so God must be so great. Elihu smears manure on Job to polish the glory of God. But is this fitting? The Lord doesn't need humans to be trashed in order to be honored. God is glorious no matter the piety or impiety of men and women. Additionally, Elihu exhibits no pity for the painful. He shows no sensitivity to the fact that Job is throbbing in agony and depression. Sure, suffering is no excuse for sin, but compassion for the afflicted is proper. If the starving person steals for food, it's still a crime, but the punishment is not as severe. Job has not been perfect. He has stepped over the line in demanding a trial. But on his tear-soaked ash heap, pity has a place. But Elihu gives it not a nod. Thus Elihu possesses a few nuggets of truth, 
and in this he does better than the friends. And yet Elihu lets his anger get the better of him. He fails to have self-control. And his unleashed anger wildly thrashes in the waters of falsehood, cruelty, and poor judgment. Elihu displays good anger went bad. In him we see how zeal can be sorely mistaken. Without truth and mercy, zeal goes from being a virtue to a vice. Though the rough hands of Elihu make us flee to the tender palms of our Lord. Indeed, Elihu magnifies the irresistible justice of God, but he mentions not the steadfast love of our Lord. He preaches the law, poorly and inaccurately, but he never gets to the gospel. And yet the Lord's justice has the purpose to drive us to his grace. The law shows us the need for the gospel. In verse 21 here, it was remarked that God sees all and there is no hiding place for us. But this is a yes and no kind of statement. Sure, under his holy gaze, we are naked with no covering in our sin. And yet where we cannot discover a hiding place from God's all-searching wrath, God has provided a refuge. The Father gave us a hiding place within his Son. Yes, we can hide in the work of Jesus. Christ's righteousness covers our shame. His blood makes our rebellions invisible. Because he loved you, the Father sees you only in Jesus Christ. In our Lord's just anger, furthermore, he doesn't abuse us or torment us unjustly. Rather, the Lord accurately exposes our unworthiness and depravity. And then by the sharp end of the law, the Father leads us to the tender mercy of our Savior. And with compassion, Jesus then provides forgiveness, justification, and adoption. In Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment for you. Wrapped in the love of God, the Father does not treat us as our sins deserve. But he removes our transgressions. He casts them into the depths of the sea, and he puts his affection upon you as his own children. Moreover, the Father always remains sensitive to our pains and our infirmaries. As it says in the New Testament, Jesus does not break us. When we are bruised, he does not snuff out our light when it is weakly flickering. But Elihu, he need Job while he was down. But Jesus does not treat you this way. Therefore, in Elihu, we are warned against the evils of anger. Even when sparked by righteousness, we often let the heat of anger burn too hotly. But anger is no excuse for bad judgment. Wrath is no justification for harmful exaggeration, untrue condemnations, and cruelty. Praising God by tearing down others is not proper doxology. And yet, as you know, how prone we are to this very thing. 
we will eloquently laud God to promote our own piety and then use it as a disguise as we lie about others. We will clap for the Lord to excuse our cruel harshness towards our fellow brothers and sisters, to our fellow image bearers. But this should not be. Rather, may the recklessness of Elihu drive us to the supreme mercy of God in Christ. May his harshness cause us to hide ourselves in the gentleness of Jesus. And then being embraced by the warm arms of Christ, may we show this same gospel patience to one another. May we be slow to speak and eloquent to listen. May we be hesitant to judge, but may we be hasty to forgive. For in this way, we magnify the glory of God's grace and we uphold the true glory and righteousness of our Savior. Amen. Let us pray.